Welcome to each and every one of you to Journey to the Stage with Brian Frazier. I don't know if you know this or not, but there are over 3 million podcasts in existence, and I'm really glad that you found this podcast and have pulled up a chair to join us on our chat today. If you've listened to Journey to the Stage in the past, you know that I have a soft spot for indie artists and do all I can to highlight them and promote their work. And one such indie artist is my friend from San Antonio, musical artist and visual artist, Chris Taylor. And a big thank you to Chris for letting him use his great song, Rise and Shine, for my podcast theme song. So back in 2008, my mom won two tickets to go see a movie and invited me to go with her. When she invited me, she couldn't remember the title, but she said it had something to do with music, and that was enough, honestly, to get me going with her. So what I watched that evening quite literally blew my mind. I had no idea, like the rest of the world, that there was an enormously talented group of studio musicians in LA that played on tons of hit records. These musicians were largely unknown to the public. They were known as the Wrecking Crew, and my guest today, Denny Tedesco, directed and co-produced that award-winning film titled The Wrecking Crew to tell their story. So on December 12th, Denny's new film, The Immediate Family, will be released. And I've only seen the trailer, but I can say that if you love music and the story behind it like I do, you need to see The Immediate Family. It is a must-see. So it's great to welcome co-producer and director Denny Tedesco. Denny, thanks for uh, joining me today. How you doing? Good morning, Brian. How are you? I'm good, man. It's it's a real it's a real treat to have you on here. I I know that everyone who has seen the Wrecking Crew that I know was so blown away by it. So great that you were able to tell that story. I thought it would be cool just to kind of set the table for us leading up to your brand new film, just to talk a little bit about who you are because that's important. Yeah. Who your dad is and how you came into the Wrecking Crew story and wanted to tell that. So maybe just give us a little bit about your background. Sure. First of all, hey, Brian, where did you see the film? What location was it? Yeah, I saw it here in Fresno. So it was at, it was the tower. Yep, and I was there. Were you really? It's funny because I tried to go to any screening of that film over the years that I could. And um, so the Wrecking Crew... What happened was, for the folks that don't know, my dad, Tommy Tedesco, was a guitarist. He, he was a session guitar player, and he was diagnosed with cancer in 96. And they said he had a year to live. And I had always wanted that story about my dad and his friends who did all the rock and roll stuff in the 60s to be, I wanted to tell that story. And I worked in film. I was a grip. I was a decorator. I'd done a production. I was producing stuff, rock and roll videos and stuff like that. So I got my friends together and started this documentary, well, at the beginning of his diagnosis. And unfortunately, dad never got to see a bit of it because he passed a year later. And uh, that's when it started. I brought together dad, a few of his friends, and then Dad passed away. I built a 14-minute little segment trying to make you know people interested, and people go, "Oh, that's great! You know, it's fabulous!" But no one would ever come out and help us. And 
because you got to realize the music I was using to tell the story was the problem. I had the Beach Boys, I had Sinatra, I had Fit Dimension, Mamas and Papas, Monkeys, anything that went through LA or recorded in LA, they usually had session musicians. So these guys were on everything and ended up the expense of music was basically outcost the making of the film. No one's going to invest if they're never going to make the money back. Didn't stop me in my tracks, but came close. I just kept going slowly and slowly. And then 2006, two years before you saw the film, my wife, Susie, basically felt like we just made the most expensive home movie ever. All I had was footage. You know, I had footage of Brian Wilson. I had footage of, I interviewed Herb Alpert. I interviewed uh, Cher, Nancy Sinatra, you, you know, Dick Clark, you name it, I interviewed them. But I describe it like this. And you have a property overlooking the ocean, but nothing's built on there. Until you build it, you know, you can't sell it or live in it. And that's where I was at. I had the plans. I had the, the wood. I had everything to go, but I just couldn't... Uh, so that's when we just decided to cut a film. And we got into the festivals in 08 and 09. And it did extremely well. Um, a lot of awards. But what ended up happening is I still owed half a million dollars worth of money to pay off the, the music and all the other rights. Which I was fine with. And by the way, you know, people say, oh, the record companies, the industry, they were screwing me. They weren't. Um, they were giving me great prices. It was just people didn't believe enough to invest to get their money back because they felt, it sounds crazy now, but no one felt music documentaries could ever do, be successful at the time. I had no idea of, of any of that. My goodness, what a labor of love. That's all it was. <laughs> so, you know, you, when you're a filmmaker, you go, you hear labor of love, it's like a kick in the teeth because it means exactly what it is. No one's helping you. People say, did anybody help you? Oh, oh I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I had um, Wells Fargo. I had B of A. I had uh, American Express. All those credit cards. Oh, I was doing it. I got a lot of help from them. <laughs> and then uh, they cut me off. I mean, I ended up uh, going bankrupt in the end because I kept flipping cards. Man, it's almost like we, we need a making of the Wrecking Crew documentary to tell this story. <laughs> You've got this this great film with a crazy background story in and of itself, getting that thing made. I mean, my goodness, it's, I had no idea what a Herculean effort that, that took for you, which makes me appreciate it even more, knowing that there is a whole lot of blood sweat and tears behind that film and also i think knowing who your dad is i have such incredible admiration for your dad's body of work and for those people who don't know my goodness google google his dad uh tommy tedesco is i mean safely we could say has played on more hits played guitar on more hits than anybody in music history i think that we could safely say that 30,000 recording sessions. I mean, well, I don't know where the, the numbers keep changing all the time. So I don't know. I mean, at one point they called him the most recorded guitarist in history in the, in the music business. And that could have changed by now. But, you know, the thing was dad and these guys were going to work, you know, in mid sixties in LA when the heyday of LA rock and roll was happening. They were doing three or four sessions a day. 
And there's a big difference in the sessions of the 60s and rock and roll than that than the other periods that follow. In those days, you had three hours to record a recording. You had three hours to record three songs. That's what you were legally allowed to do. So you go in, they lay the music down, you, you know, start going. And you only had a couple tracks. You didn't have like a lot of overdubbing in the early days, especially with like, like the Phil Spector sessions. It was all mono. So you just, you know, mixed it as you went and you went for it. And, uh, you know, so you have 15, 10, 15 people in a room and they better all nail it. They don't have time for mess ups. They don't have time. You, you're doing solos live in a sense. You're not overdubbing. So if you don't like that guy's solo, oh boy. Or that you know he messes up, or someone messes up. It was it was Glenn Campbell who's part of the Wrecking Crew. He said to me, he goes, "It was like playing with Michael Jordan, but everybody in the room was Michael Jordan. So if anybody messed up, you had to start over. You didn't just punch in at you know minute thirty. Let's pick it up there. No, you have to go to the beginning and start all over. So you get 10, 15 people starting all over. If you keep messing up, you're gonna." being you know you're not coming back and you know those people and those musicians they have another session to go to they got you know like i said dad could work three four five times a day it wasn't unusual to be booked all day long yeah in fact just last night as i was just doing prep work i found a video it was highlighting your dad and his work on the soundtrack for field of dreams um, which, oh, yeah. was scored, which was scored by James Horner. In fact, I think I saw it on the Wrecking Crew channel, and he talked about how he came in, his guitar playing came in at like bar 122. And because James Horner was, we always start from the beginning. That was his, and I've heard others talk about about him doing that. So your dad's like, I had to be ready, and I had to nail it, because if I didn't, we are going all the way back to the beginning in all, you know, 60 of these musicians, because there was a full orchestra there. Um, we're going to be going from the beginning. Everyone's going to be looking at me sideways thinking, come on, buddy, get it together. So he felt the the need to be so locked in and paying attention. So, yeah, I could hear. Yeah, and, and that's where my father excelled is, so rock and roll, you know, he's got his heyday in the 60s. You know, in the records, you know, really, he starts and he comes out. My parents leave Niagara Falls, New York, for '53. You know, he was with, you know, basically, long story short, he was with a big band that got he got lucky, got an audition in Niagara Falls, New York, of a big band coming through. He gets out to L.A. Um, they basically uh, fire him. They found a guitar player that could sing, so they get rid of the guitar player and the singer of the band. So, you know, downsize. So he goes back to Niagara Falls and he's like so depressed, doesn't want to stay because he'd already been to LA, saw people working in studios and, and saw, you know, met musicians. So he is so ashamed to be fired. He picks up and goes to LA with my mom and my older brother. And uh, that's where um, he starts his career. And by 58, he's starting to work, you know, little gigs here and he starts building up a reputation. And, um, he can read and he's really if i got anything from my father it's being um 
I don't play guitar, by the way. I don't play an instrument. So that I did not get. And what he did was he worked at it every day, practiced every day. And he would go eight, 10 hours until he, you know, in those days. And that's when he got to LA because he wanted to do it. And um, so what he ended up doing was he became really an amazing reader and where other guys didn't read as much or as well. And for some reason he had the knack of it. And so when he got to 60s, the rock and roll stuff, he's, that's easy, blah, blah, blah. But then rock and roll starts fading away. But now he's one of the few guys that makes that transition into film and TV. And that's where he really excels. And his career goes for another 20 years. Yeah, his um, credits for television are incredible. I mean, really, you know, so, so many iconic yeah. theme songs, like, you know, the Batman theme song. I mean, there are just a ton of them. It's like you almost hate to mention one because there's a massive list. But yeah. basically, my childhood, I mean, effectively. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. And, you know, and someone asked him, what would you want to be remembered for? And I always remember this. His line was, there was eight other guitar players that could do the Batman theme or Green Acres theme, you know, whatever. You know, because it wasn't that difficult, you know. But when John Williams or James Horner or Henry Mancini are asking you to book yourself two months in advance because there is a, a movie, let's say River or Fields of Dreams, and it's a piece that's going to be or Cocoon, which was another John, um, James Warner film, when they're asking you to put yourself on hold in September, the first week, that means they're calling you. They're not calling for the guitar player. And that means everything to uh, the guy. And that's what I meant to my father, because there was maybe one other guy that could do what he was doing, because he had something very special. He could read and play the acoustic guitar like so beautifully. His interpretation, it was phenomenal. And I'm not just saying this because I'm my son. His friends said that. Yeah, well, and his his legacy, his body of work, in so many ways, speaks for itself. Although it's great to have that highlighted and amplified by the by the work that you've done, especially through the Wrecking Crew film. So that's some great background. Tell us how we go from that massive labor of love for you, the Wrecking Crew film award-winning amazing eye-opening incredibly informative and entertaining when, when you can do both in a film mission accomplished right how do you go from there tell me how you know with immediate family like how did this come to your plate so to speak well so 2015 magnolia pictures finally picks up and once i paid everything off i was able to go find a distributor for a wrecking crew so that came out in 2015, it went to theaters and Netflix and everywhere else, and it did extremely well. Music docs continue to be doing well at that point, but no one's calling. I was always concerned about, am I ever going to work again? Because no one's ever going to think of me as a director, even though I worked in film. And so people had a lot of great ideas for documentaries. There's, every day there's a great idea. And then producers, Jack Pyatt, Craig Richling, and Jonathan Sheldon came to me and said, would you be, hey, you know, love the doc, da 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 da. Would you be interested in this story? And it was the story of the guys that were in the 70s called The Section. They were, there was 
a group of guys that played with James Taylor and Jackson Brown. It was uh, Russ Kunkel, Leland Sklar, Danny Coachmore, and and they said they have a new band out with Wadi Wachtel, who is another guitar player, and they're playing around called the Immediate Family. But these were the guys in seventies and eighties, rock and roll. And I said, I love that idea because I know all those names. I knew Leland personally, you know, but the others were just listeners to me. And I said, and I said, here's the greatest thing about the story of the media family for me. I said, at the end of uh, Wrecking Crew, I went to the producer, Lou Adler. I said, did you, you know, who did all the mamas and papas and you did Jan and Dean and stuff with the Wrecking Crew guys. I said, did you make a conscious decision when you did Carol King's Tapestry? I said, do you make a conscious decision to change your sound? You know, go a different way. Because that's the end of basically Wrecking Crew in the early 70s, they're not doing the rock and roll stuff anymore. He goes, absolutely not. He goes, oh, no, Carol King brought her own friends in. She brought in Carol, um, brought in James Taylor and uh, Cooch, Danny Coachmar, to you know record with her. So that starts a whole nother generation. And those are the guys that do Sweet Baby James, Tapestry, Joni Mitchell's Blue, Russ Kunkel's on all three of those. And so the singer-songwriter era takes off. And so these are the guys that are there at the beginning. And I, it's funny because I interviewed Peter Asher and I, and I said something about legends. He looked at me like I was nuts. He goes, they weren't legends. He goes, they were our friends. They, they hadn't done anything at that point. And I realized you're right because Leland, you know, his first, he, he comes out of school just to go on the tour of Sweet Baby James. He doesn't even do Sweet Baby James. And he goes on tour and he, for, you know, he went to Seaston Northridge and uh, they found, James found him in a rehearsal band or something. And he said, my God, this guy's amazing. And, and he goes on tour for a month and never returns to school. 50 something years later, he never stopped working. All right, here's the trailer for Immediate Family. Let's check it out. In the early seventies, you couldn't pick up an album and look at the liner notes without seeing these guys' names. I would buy records just because they were on it. The creative input of these session guys cannot be overstated. It can't be overstated. Russ Kunkel. Danny Korchmar. And it's too late, baby, now it's too late. Lee Sklar. Wadi. They were just musicians we knew, and they gradually became legendary session musicians. My main goal was to not get fired. <laughs> Tapestry, the whole thing was done in three weeks. Three songs in one day, and we didn't piece yeah. together the best. No, like it wasn't overdubbed. Look, we were all in our 20s. No, there was no sleeping. Each album became like a, what's the next thing they're gonna do? Not only did they give birth to this music, they're as much the author of these songs as the artist they did it with. Ego goes out the window. Well, I'm not sure that's true. I have a huge ego. Well, <laughs> you can walk across the water. I could get hipper, younger people. In, in this hotel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but these are the people that play it best. You've got to have skin in the 
all I can express is admiration for these guys. Four truly great players, all of them masters of their instrument. In hindsight, I was just happy to be there. I've got a band full of brothers that love me. I'm proud of all of it. That's incredible. You know, and you look at that that period, that singer-songwriter period, it is, I think, obviously such an exceptional period in American music history. There's just been nothing like it. You think they launched a genre. I mean... Oh, totally. Everything changes. There's so many things that change in that period. Technology changed. FM radio comes in. FM starts playing LPs. We have five songs on one side, five songs on the back side. She's telling a story, you know, so artists are writing towards that. So now the audiences are getting involved with not just singles, which is what the music business was based on. If you, in the 60s, if you had a single, you had a couple hits, you put an album together, but you weren't concentrating every song being a hit. When Carole King is doing Tapestry, James is doing Sweet Baby James, they're working on those albums for two, three weeks, you know, maybe before they even record. The music is changing. It's better, you know, produced in terms of they're taking their time. The musicians are, they can contribute more. They become family. They're doing these albums. Then they go on the road with these groups. Because now they could support the album they just recorded. In the 60s, Dad never left the studio. You do not go on the road in 1966 or 67. You didn't leave the studio because you weren't going to make that much money. And if you left the studio, so-and-so is going to take that place and take that account. You're not getting it back. And being on the road is hard anyway, and being away from your family. So, yeah, no, yeah. I could see I could see that. Now, I look at the list of people that you, that you interviewed. You alluded to it. I mean, you've got, among others, Carol King, James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, Phil Collins, Don Henley, who really does not do interviews anymore, no. Stevie Nicks, and David Crosby, of course, who has since passed away. How hard was it for you to get these people booked, each of them, are megastars. How did you do that? So I would love to take the credit, but I can't. <laughs> and this is the, here's the thing is I go in for the meeting with the guys, you know, to pitch the idea of the band, you know, to the band and they bite on it. And my, my spin on it, I said, here's the thing, guys, we already know it's going to follow up from the wrecking crew. I said, I don't want to do a copy of the wrecking crew. Cause you guys are obviously it's a different era. You are different. I said, that I want to highlight the changes. I want to highlight the fact that you guys never stopped playing. You played live. My dad, those guys never played live. Like I said, you guys are epitome of rock and roll. They're real rock and roll players. You know, my father was not a rock and roll player. He played rock and roll, but that wasn't his thing. The other spin, by the way, is the idea that they're called immediate family. At the beginning of the Wrecking Crew, in my voice, I did the BO, I said, this is the story of my father and his extended family, the wrecking crew. And I realized that's the key to all of these stories is family. They're brothers and sisters and whatever. It's a bond that they have. Sometimes it's not great, but it is a bond. So they said yes. And the next day, they said Carol King can be in, uh, interviewed in three weeks. I went, oh my God. I went, okay. 
And I was not ready for that. You know, it was like, I just pitched an idea. I really don't know my stuff at this point. Do I really know it? So I start reading and playing and music and, you know, go, you know, I'm at least, I'm not totally going from scratch. I have an idea and I, you know, I know the names and stuff. Then within two months, I had Carol King, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstead, James Taylor, Phil Collins, Lou Adler, and probably a couple others within a couple months in the can. And that is because all of those people, when the guys reached out to them or management reached out to them, they all said yes, instantly. Because, I mean, Linda, Linda at this point, and she's not in great shape. So for her to say it is amazing. And like you said, Don Henley, Don and in, in, um, Danny Kochmar, Danny produced his first three albums. And they're both very um, opinionated people. And very, you know, as my grandma would call me, testadure in Italian, which was like a stubborn head. They had their relationship lasted three albums. But, you know, I know they, it was hard, but Don Henley has such respect for Danny that he said, yes, that's huge. And, you know, so I went to Dallas and interviewed him and he was fabulous. And just before you turn off the camera, he paused and he goes, I got to give Danny all the credit because I would not have had a solo career if it wasn't for Danny Kuchmar. It was his idea. And he's the one that pushed me into it. It's the guys, the love of these guys, because like I said, they're in the out, they're in the studios for months at a time with these people. They're on the road for months and months and months. As, as Linda Ronson said, it was, it was album, tour, tour, album, tour, tour. She goes, then I got to album, tour, 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 tour. Let's listen to a little bit of an outtake by Val Garay, who's a producer, five-time Grammy winner, has over 100 gold and platinum albums, talking about the recording of James Taylor's JT album and the song Handyman in particular. And I watched Danny do it, the, the whole James Taylor JT record. I mean, we're sitting in the control room, and Peter and I are listening. We were taking a break, and Danny and, and James are in the booth next to us, just jamming, playing, and Danny started playing Handyman. And James started singing it, and both Peter and I looked at each other and went, oh my God, and ran running out there, and James goes, I'm not cutting another oldie. <laughs> but needless to say, he did. But it, it's funny, Dan, that was Danny, you know what I mean? Hey girls, gather round, listen it's interesting because I had a, an old friend of mine said something to me one time and it was something like, it's better to give a rose to the living than to pin it on the clothes of those who've passed. Wow, that is brilliant. You're going to have to write that down because I have a horrible memory and I will just print it out. No joke. Yeah, I'll email the quote to you. Yeah, beautiful. Do you, do you think that there's a little bit of that motivation in you wanting to tell their story now that these guys, you know, they're in their seventies. They're still, thank God, very healthy and active. They're, yeah. they're still doing what they oh. love to do, not slowing down, but is it, is it part of it to tell that story while they're, while they can enjoy the rose? Oh, that's really such a great, Brian. That is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Your audience can't see you were on Zoom, but I'm tearing up. My case, 
to tell the wrecking crew story, I think it was my way of holding on to my father, you know, to tell that story. I think it, I was at the right place at the right time. So yes, and it's funny because I tell people in Q and A's, especially younger audiences when I speak at colleges or wherever, film schools or, I, or anywhere, I tell people, go interview your parents, your grandparents. You don't have to make a documentary, just grasp the stories because once they're gone, they're gone and you won't get it back. You know, and you, everybody's got the chance to tell, to learn and remember, um, if they hear their voices again. We didn't have that when I was growing up. We had eight millimeter and until 1980, we didn't have VHS. So I always feel like, God, I wish I could hear what my grandfather sounded like. So, you know, kind of from an outsider's perspective, the films you've made, and again, I haven't, I haven't seen Immediate Family yet, but looking forward to it, do two things. They, they kind of tell an untold story by highlighting these great musicians behind really some of the greatest music ever made, but it's also a way of saying thank you, maybe giving them the propers they didn't get because they were, they were uncredited on a lot of albums and this and that. That's that's really incredible, and I I hope that you see just me as a as a listener as a consumer have such a great appreciation for for what you're doing, Denny, and uh, you're I telling stories that. that need to be told. You're documenting some incredible music history, so I'm I'm just glad you're you're doing these things, and I I know you find a great deal of satisfaction in telling these stories, but it's. I'm just, I'm glad you're doing this, man. I really am. I appreciate Well, I got to tell you, it's funny because when we, you know, when we were making the film and, you know, COVID stopped us in our tracks. And so when we finally had a cut, we were still end of COVID. So we were very cautious of being in the, in to show the film to, you know, as a group. And, we'll, and we all went to a uh, theater, you know, a small room. And we had the guys and Jackson was there and we showed a rough cut. And at the, you know, that's the scariest part is you're showing the film the first time to hear the people you're, you know, gonna share, you know, it's their story. And I just remember them just being a silent at the end, like, you know, and, and I remember Wadi, in, you know, tearing up. And, you know, Wadi's a tough New York guy, you know, guitar player. And he said, um, wow, he goes, I've, you know, he goes, I've had, I've been in hundreds of documentaries talking about everybody else. No one's ever, you know, never heard stories about myself and, you know, things like that. And, and uh, Jackson said, he goes, well, I've known these guys for 50 years and I didn't know a lot of this stuff. And, and it made me, I was really proud of that. You know, as for us, the producers and myself, we were proud to know that we, we told our story. So Denny, let's let's talk about where people can see this. It hits theaters. Tell us tell us all that stuff and uh, just kind of yeah. give us the the lowdown of where we can get that information. So, so the film comes out is December twelfth is uh, theaters, and it's gonna it's basically around theaters uh, around the country about seventy theaters, and it's like one night only for many, or some will pick it up for a few more days or a week, whatever it is. And that, it, it, we'll see how that does. 
And then at the same time on the 15th, which I, we're not sure when this is playing, but on the 15th of December, it will be on uh, video on demand. It will be uh, on Amazon Prime, it'll be on Apple and other, um, other places that you can rent it or buy it. And the goal is to blast it out for us because we need everybody to see it that first few weeks because that will determine if it goes to streaming, whether it goes to Hulu or wherever it goes. So our goal is to really get people to watch it. And, you know, and hopefully it will have, you know, a life of its own. Yeah. It, it, you know, it does half as well as Wrecking Crew, we're okay. Yeah. Because Wrecking Crew is still on Hulu today. It's yep. on Hulu. I just watched and, it maybe four or five months ago. Oh, wow. So before we wrap up, I, I have to, there's this great story about your dad that Lee Sklar tells. And it's about a trick he learned from your dad. Oh, yeah. You, t you could probably tell that story better than I could. Yeah. Would you share that with us? Because I think it's so, it says so much about your dad and his influence. So dad, you know, a lot of guitars, like mandolins, banjos, bazookis, they all have different tunings. Dad was the expert, by the way, of, he knew how to keep a gig and get a gig and you know, make a producer smile. So he didn't need to be the greatest mandolin player or the greatest classical player. He needs to, as a studio player, he needs to know how to get to where he's got to get to. Lee was talking about either on a movie date or a TV date, Tommy's there next to him and you got to realize there's baffles in front of all these guys, sound baffles. So the person asked, talking to uh, the musician from the booth doesn't see what the person's holding. He doesn't see the instrument, he just sees the head. He said. He said, Tommy, can you play that on mandolin? Sure. And he bends down and he pretends to bring up the mandolin and he starts playing the same guitar as if it was a mandolin. He just changes his, you know, where his fingers are or how he's playing it. And they said, no, can you, do, can you show us on da-da-da? So he bends down, comes back, da-da-da. You know, it sounds great, but on, and he goes, and they finally come up with one that they like. And nothing's changed. It's the same guitar. And then Lee Tenney goes, I just learned more in five minutes about the music business than I had in school or the last 25 years. Well, it's funny because the, um, so the follow-up to that, that story that, that Leland Sklar tells about your dad, he said he had a, a switch oh, added right. to his bass, which was dead. It was not connected to anything. But, yeah. you know, he'd get the, you know, the word from the booth. Hey, uh, Leland, can you try, you know, this type of tone? He'd flip the switch and they'd be like, okay, yeah, yeah no, that sounds better. And he's just like, yeah. <laughs> he had done nothing. Yeah, just, <laughs> so no, funny. exactly. That's why Leland went home and put that switch in. <laughs> yeah. Well, Denny, it been, uh, it's been great, great chatting with you. I can't wait to see this film again. Hope everybody, as soon as this thing hits the streets, Get out there, see it, get behind this. This is how more stories get told in the future. And we have an opportunity here to get behind this thing with our feet, with a few bucks to go see it or to, to uh, or for video on demand. And it can really set this film up to do well and be seen by a wider audience. And that's the purpose of story. So it's told far and wide. So Denny, thank you uh, so much. You've got, oh, Thanks, yeah, you've got a website. What's your website so people can go in there? And, oh, uh, yeah, it's, it follow, yeah, please, it's really follow us. It's immediatefamilyfilm.com and uh, at immediatefamilyfilm on uh, Facebook and Instagram. And if you, just, if you forget to put film in, 
on the end of Media Family Film. If you just put a media family, you'll get a therapist. So I think you'll be okay. <laughs> Either way, we get we get good. Either way, you'll be fine. Yeah, well, I'll put all those links in the show description of the podcast. That way, people can just go down and click. Denny, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for hanging out with me today and sharing about this film. And for everybody listening across all 130 countries, thank you for tuning in. And remember to keep your bags packed and join us on our next Journey to the Stage. And that's a wrap.